everyone. I'm LinkedIn. I'll be running this meeting. Settle down, settle down. Hey, guys. Hey, Sorry I'm late. Hello. Algorithm issues. Hey, Ugh. Instagram. No you problem. <laughs> I'm LinkedIn. I'm in charge. Please refer to the PowerPoint so we can keep this meeting efficient and productive. First on the agenda, Twitter, you said you wanted to share a personal essay. Yes. <clears throat> the world is burning. Thank you. So concise, Twitter. Thank you. Instagram, did you have a question? Yes, first of all, love the visual on the world burning. I was going to suggest adding Clarendon to increase the visual pop of the world burning. Maybe a little vignette effect. Me too. I can do that too. Facebook, I, I it's know Instagram's to turn to talk. Or to increase the engagement with the world burning, I would suggest a reel. I also have that. I you have guys, reels. You've got to do a reel. I have reels. Facebook, shh. Yes, Tinder? Um, the only fire that matters are the flames of passion. Whoa! <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, this is a workplace. Uh, what? I, no, let's see. take a break, LinkedIn. Hey, isn't Be Real supposed to be here? Oh, no one knows when they're showing up, but guaranteed they will be boring, so let's move on. Facebook? I just want to point out that I'm here. I've been here 24-7. I get that you guys are so cool. I, I have a marketplace. I host events. You, you want to fight? Uh, Too long. Get it, Reed. Can I be angrier? Again with the fighting? This is why you're phasing out. Phasing out? I replaced the yellow pages. <laughs> Just try calling your grandmother without me. All right. Yeah. I think someone else needs the conference room. Let's circle back next week. Work harder, not smarter, guys. Hey, I think I just invented a new form of harassment. Bye, Twitter. You feeling better, bud? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Facebook is feeling calm. Mm, you're back in third person. Let's just stick to cross-posting for a while. Do you want to talk politics with me for a few hours? Uh, no. Do you hear that? Go offline, go offline, go offline! The world is burning. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa. Today we're diving into how you navigate the nuances of different social platforms and what an intentional online identity looks like when every online space is so different. Has this ever happened to you? You walk into a room and you're not sure your place, where you belong, what part of your personality you should bring out or suppress. I felt this dramatically as a young mom newly planted in England. I didn't understand the small English country life. I was meeting strangers who I hoped would be my friends. I'll never forget walking into a centuries-old Catholic church for playtime hour in Dawlish, England. This church, which would serve as a parent-child preschool meetup, was in the middle of a cemetery. You know, the stereotypical old English church. Overgrown grass, cool worn-out headstones like you might see in a horror movie or in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was during Buffy's show that I actually lived here, you see. So this is how I got through hard times, TV, but I digress. So nothing like the playgroups I had ever been to with people I had never met. 
I was only there because a stranger had told me about it. Someone at a playground who noticed my accent and probably the desperation in my eyes for something to do in a strange town that involved talking to other adults. I was desperate for social interaction while my husband was away at school and work all day. And so my two baby toddlers and I walked into the room. I would have been confident in America. I would think, yeah, American moms with baby toddlers. We have a lot in common. I know what you're worried about, what you do or not do all day, what you think is funny, ridiculous, frustrating. That's me too. We're the same. But when I walked into that old door, I was surrounded by strangers I couldn't get a read on. Everyone looked at me and no one said anything. They just watched their kids play. There was some quiet chatting, I was trying to catch eyes with anyone. Are you my friend? And make some jokes, of course. I immediately surmise, okay, you need to be quieter. Don't overwhelm them. You're asking too many questions. But then I thought, I'll be the friendly American they can talk about. I have a role here too. I met my best friend in England, Jenny, on that day. My worst fears came true. She was laughing at me and thought, oh, this poor girl doesn't fit in here. I'll take pity on her. And she did. Maybe she didn't use, you know, those words exactly, but you get the point. She loved to laugh at me and how I sat down and said, oh, you moved to Dollish this week? Me too. Let's be best friends. That's not how the English make friends, apparently. I did a lot of other American things that made me odd. Drinking Diet Coke, trick-or-treating on Halloween, being fancy and wearing makeup and talking loudly. I, I tried, I really did, to slowly reveal myself, you know, not all at once. A version of myself, but with the volume turned down. But in the end, I mean, it all came out. I kept going to that play group and I made a lot of friends and we were laughing about America and our kids and all of that in no time. So although I felt so dumb and nervous that first day walking through the door, I'm so glad I did. I'm the fancy loud American who drinks water and Diet Coke. There are worse things. At this point in my life, I don't encounter many situations where I feel so uncertain about who to be in front of the people I'm with. But online, it's a different story. Social media comes in different shapes and sizes, and most of us are on more than one platform. That's normal. But here's where it starts to feel less normal. My preferred platforms are Instagram and Facebook, and I tend to follow or friend more or less the same people. But. Those audiences and spaces are still really different from each other. How people communicate and interact, what they talk about, what the ideals are, it just feels different. And for as comfortable as I feel in my real life navigating unfamiliar social settings, I've had these accounts for years and I still feel like I'm figuring it out, as though I'm still standing at the entrance to a playground in another country and I'm trying not to talk too loud. Except this is happening in the comfort of my own home. So I get an eerie feeling when I notice myself tweaking a caption on one platform and tagging my friends on another or posting in one place but not another. What is that? What unspoken rules am I following? 
Noticing the differences in these social spaces is the easy part. Figuring out why and how that's impacting the way I show up to my friends is a lot harder to figure out. But I assembled a very balanced representation of people to do it with me. I've got a council of moms with the whole gamut of social media presence. And I've got my friend Amy, who's going to break down my least favorite type of social media platform, dating apps. Ugh. I admit I've been avoiding that conversation for a while. But on this journey to be totally intentional about my online identity, it's all on the table today. So let me introduce you to my guests on the Council of Moms today. They're both moms, they have a mix of college age and younger children, and they have some wildly different feelings about how they interact with different platforms. On the one hand, you have Karina. I am very online. I'm yeah. extremely online. I would say that. I like there's not a social network that I haven't either tried or am active on. It is definitely something that has been part of my life for 30 years now. So I've been online since the mid-90s. I was just going to say, you're an yeah. early adopter also. Yeah, yeah. and you're you an early adopter before beginning. dating apps. You met your husband online. I did. People are like, did you meet on like Match? I'm like, no, those didn't exist. <laughs> those didn't exist at <laughs> no. all. And the other voice you're hearing is Amy, who's at the opposite end of the scale when it comes to her online presence. Yeah, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I had a Twitter account for a minute. I tweeted maybe two or three things. And then actually, then I think my account was still active. And a long time ago, my little boy was accidentally posting things on my Twitter account. And a friend oh, texted me. It was really fun. It's like, I think someone's on your Twitter account. He was like <laughs> posting results from a game he was playing or something. So <laughs> that was fun. So a Twitter account exists, but I don't, I'm not on Twitter. So Facebook, I was on it uh, and liked it for a time. I just get weird about social media. I just get in my head about it. You know, like, who's watching? And I've never had a negative experience. It's not like anyone's ever been mean to me or I have any founded discomfort. But I just get, ugh, I don't know, introverty maybe? Insecure maybe? So you've got Karina, who has found a home in a lot of different platforms, all of the platforms even, at one time or another. And then Amy, who uses Facebook and Instagram, but doesn't feel entirely comfortable in either place. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle, but I was curious to know how Karina and Amy use these platforms and why they love or don't love them so much. Was there a key to finding your niche in these different mediums? Okay. All right. Let's start with Facebook since it's one of the first ones out there. This is Karina speaking. The first is like, I've had my account there since, I don't know, pretty late in Facebook times since 2009. Um, and I've not really been active over the past like six years. It's just been something that has, I feel like, passed its usage date for me. I keep it for like occasional check-ins. I honestly will check Facebook like once every month at the maximum and sometimes go months at a time without logging into Facebook. But I'm there. It's useful for me to keep up with relatives, especially those that I have that are overseas or um, elderly acquaintances that still use Facebook as their primary social media platform. <laughs> Got a hook in them, right? They're there. Oh, yeah. They gave it a shot, and that's the one that they're on, which is great. 
I think at this point at Classic, we're all going on, on, most of us, for a decade of use of Instagram. It's just, you know, a lot of times using it as a memory book and a photo album and little snapshots of everyday life. I like to keep that private. and It's not something I usually connect with people on or share things on. That's just how I use it. Karina, when you say you don't usually connect with people on there, what do you mean? I mean not that I'm people? not, like, focused on building my network oh, there gotcha. or, you know, I'd love like, to add new friends or, you know, keep in touch with people, but it's not someplace where I'm like, I'm going to build and monetize this or I'm going to be a content creator and really create things. Like, that's how I'm using Instagram. And, you know, I think one of the great things about social, a lot of social networks is you can use it however you want yeah. and you can have your own rules for it. That's how I use that. So Karina uses Facebook like a scrapbook and as a way to keep in touch with family. And she recognizes that Instagram is used to build an audience and build a business, but she doesn't want to be a content creator. So she opts out of that part of it and keeps her account private. She is in control. But I wanted to pause here on what Karina just said about rules. Because rules feel like a big part of this. At least that's been my impression. It feels like there are unwritten rules in all of these spaces for how much you share and what you share about. And Karina's approach, making her own rules, well, that's just not how it occurs for me. I feel like I'm usually looking for cues on how I should be using it. However, Karina does point out that not every platform lends itself to the way she wants to express herself. She may be making her own rules, but those rules aren't necessarily compatible with all the social media she's tried, and not every platform gives her what she's looking to get out of it. I'm not a huge Snapchat person. I, I just don't like it. TikTok for me is about consuming content. Love seeing the funny videos and learning new things and, you know, keeping track of recipes. That's what I'm on TikTok for. Um, my most active social media channel by far is Twitter. I have been there for an embarrassing amount of time at this point. <laughs> I think I'm about to hit 15 years on Twitter. That is where I get, like, I follow all my news sources there, you know, my NPR, Washington Post, and all my national magazines. I love reading articles from obscure people and learning little tidbits and keeping up with current events, you know, that stuff breaks on Twitter 12 to 48 hours before it does anywhere else. That's, I super love Twitter, so. At this point, I had to ask Karina on which platform she felt most authentic. And for someone who is leveraging social media at a level that I probably will never achieve, I was surprised at how much I could relate to her answer. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I honestly feel like I show up as the same person everywhere. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people see me as the same person everywhere. Something about this feels like it's right at the heart of what I'm trying to decode here. It makes sense. What happens when you tell a joke at work and nobody laughs? You take a note and filter a little more in the future. Or if people do laugh, you feel a little more confident the next time you think of a punchline and you're more likely to share in the future. We're all doing this in real life, consciously or not, adapting to the feedback we get from the people around us. Karina had examples of what this looks like for her online. 
Like Twitter, I'm way more likely to get political and put those kind of opinions out there. It's just to me, I'm like, I'm not going to do that on Facebook again. No, you know, I'm just tired <laughs> of having those conversations. I think it never goes well when I bring Twitter energy to Instagram. Um, it's just, just not a thing that's super great. So overall, Karina has developed this very agile approach to different platforms where she feels herself on all of them, but also knows that different aspects of her opinions and her creative work resonate differently in the different online spaces. One of the spaces where I feel most out of my element, where this inner dialogue of what to share and what not to is at a fever pitch, and where the way you're perceived seems so high stakes, is dating apps. Ugh, I don't even know where to start with this one. Dating apps have more of an end goal, a finish line, than other platforms. And the feedback you get on how you show up isn't nearly as straightforward as like 10 likes, two comments, etc. It's just rough out there. And in a context where it feels more important than ever to be yourself, there's also more unwritten rules and hidden pitfalls. They're just the worst. I mean, I think they're the worst. And that's why I brought in the big guns for this. My friend Amy, the online dating expert in my life who knows the ins and outs, the different apps, and who has been telling me for a long time that I need to give dating apps another chance and give my profile a makeover. I asked her to share a little bit of her philosophy to this weird little set of social platforms and how she got there. I started out on, because I'm an old person. I'm old. I'm not, old. I'm not, well, I'm for dating I am. Yeah, well. I'm not 22. Right. That's, I guess, what it comes down to. So I thought, all right, I'll start on the ones I see on the commercials, like eHarmony and Match and stuff like that. And I got on those and... Like, you're filling out these long profiles, and they're asking you all, like, your personality type. And and it felt like a lot of pressure to form this love match that was going to last for the rest of your life. Oh, okay. And I, so that's like eHarmony and what? Which one? Match was okay. a lot like that. So if you're looking for a long term. Right. And eventually I am. And, I like, even now I may consider myself looking for a long term. But when I was just starting to date again, I wasn't interested in finding another husband, like, right off the bat. I just wanted to go out and date. And so those, like, just, I, there was so much pressure to have this, like, perfect match. And none of them were perfect matches. Now, this was really interesting to me because in a moment, Amy's going to mention how she found one particular app that felt most authentic to where she was in her dating journey. Rather than shape the way she was communicating to match the audience on eHarmony, for example, where she's feeling all the pressure, she took a deep breath and looked for a platform that felt more aligned to where she was at. And so I stopped going on those and I went on, the next one I went on was Bumble. And I'm still on Bumble, and I like Bumble. And one of the reasons I like Bumble is because, um, like, you can like someone's profile or they can like yours, but women have to be the first ones to, like, you've got to make the first move. So oh, you've got to be the one that messages okay. them. They can't just message you. And then I tried out Hinge, and I like that one too, but really, like, for me in that period of time, Tinder was the one that I ended up on, and I liked. And I know, like, that sounds so awful, and I feel like people hear that and think, oh, what were you looking for? And that's not what I was looking for. But for me, it felt way more authentic because it felt more like how you would meet someone in real life, right? Like you're at a bar or a party or whatever, and you see someone across the room and you're like, 
he's cute. And hopefully they make eye contact with you and go, oh, she's cute. And then you have this very brief conversation, nothing in depth, and you kind of decide whether or not you want to pursue that. Amy and I talked a lot about the different conventions and how cultural approaches to dating might not really be the same online, especially not from how we grew up. And as we started to talk about profiles, how you curate your identity for online dating, because you're forced to, she brought up an experience that completely changed how and whether she used dating apps altogether. I was on dating apps for a very, very brief period of time, and then I took a break, and then I came back to them. And the reason that when I was on those dating apps before and I left is because I had men that were liking my profile, and I was chatting with them, and it didn't take me long to figure out that I was contorting myself into something that I thought they would like. I was blunting portions of my personality. I was enhancing ones that maybe didn't come as naturally. And it only took me like two or three weeks to realize I was doing it. And that, at that point, I was like, okay, I'm not ready to be on the dating apps because I can't do this. I can't contort myself into something that I'm not in order to make this boy like me. And so when I came back to the dating apps, it was a really conscious decision not to do that again. And so I changed what was on my profile. I changed my pictures, not a ton, but enough that it was more authentic picture of who I was. So I used more sarcasm. Previously, I'd had some negative experiences with, I'm, I'm a fairly educated person. I've got a good job. And there were men that were intimidated by that. And so I had started, like, stop telling people how educated I was, just things like that. And now I'm like, no, like, if you are going to like me, you're going to like all pieces of me, and I'm not going to turn myself into something I'm not yeah, in order to make you happy. Anyone. No, it doesn't, because it's just ultimately it's every a waste of everyone's time, because unless you plan on faking it for the rest of your life... <laughs> Like, literally. Yeah, I love wakeboarding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, can we go fishing again this weekend? Yay! Yeah. Um, no, thanks. Eventually, you're going to get to the point where they're going to discover all of the weird quirks about you anyway, right? Um, and I think sometimes people kind of hold out hope that by the time their quirks get discovered, that they'll be in love with you enough that they won't care. <laughs> they're like, oh, I can overlook that. Love isn't that strong. Yeah. <laughs> but so, and then same thing. Like, I don't want a man who yeah. is intimidated by my profession or my fact that I have kids or the fact that I have more animals than kids at my house currently. <laughs> I just kind of, I stopped trying to turn myself into something I wasn't in order to please someone I didn't even know. Something that stands out to me about Amy's story here is that she noticed what was happening to her personality, and then she was able to say, if this is the cost, then I'm not ready for any of this. And she took a break from all of the dating apps. Some instinct knew the difference between, I don't know if I can present myself authentically on eHarmony, onto the next, and I'm losing myself as a person because of the way I perceive others perceiving me hard out. In the larger conversation about having a single identity across social media platforms, the struggle of curating an online dating profile doesn't feel that unique. Whether it's Instagram or Match.com, it feels like there's a fine line between being yourself and TMI. Am I oversharing or am I being authentic? 
And as I talk to more people about this, I'm realizing that some of it is unavoidable. But I love the story Amy tells about her dating experience because it takes some of the nebulous fear out of this thing, which has bothered me before, that I'm filtering myself based on the platform I'm using. Maybe that filtering isn't all created equal. Amy made a very clear distinction between social filtering that helped her and allowed her to make more connections and the self-destructive social filtering that distanced her from her real identity. That feels like a much easier thing to watch for rather than just worrying anytime I notice myself crafting the same message differently for a different platform. There's a difference between focusing the way you express yourself and suppressing who you are. I want to bring you back to the Council of Moms for a moment, because speaking of filtering, I asked Karina and Amy if they ever posted something on any or all of the platforms that they regretted. All the time, every day, all the time. Really? All the time. Like what? <laughs> Tell me the latest. Every day? All the time. Give me an example of like, I something mean, today, that you never I, post. I, today I said something that was today. maybe a little controversial <laughs> on Twitter, and it was I was trying to be funny, which is always the problem, right? When you think <laughs> when you're trying to be funny, well, and you're like, oh, like it's you. not coming across right. <laughs> yeah. And people are misinterpreting it or don't understand what I'm saying, so maybe I just need to like just take that down. Like I don't need that out there, and if it's not coming across, it's probably my bad writing and maybe that they don't understand it. So maybe I need to workshop that a little bit more before I try and push it out again. <laughs> I posted once uh, an early theory that turned out, like, like you know, moms are up in arms about it, yeah. turned out to be from QAnon. Oh, my oh, gosh. <laughs> that was really uncomfortable. I felt How like I was on this out? righteous bandwagon, yeah. right? Like, I'm like, we are after this situation, guys. And then someone, not someone in my close life, someone yeah. a little bit like— On the peripheral. Yeah, on the peripheral, reached out and was like, hey, I think this maybe is a QAnon theory. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, boy. So, so did you take it down? Um, it may have already passed. Oh, got it. Like yeah. it was in stories and it, yeah. you know, so it might have been yeah. gone. I mean, the ephemerality of the internet is can be really great in that way. Like this <laughs> yeah. nonsense that you say yes. can kind of yes. end up in the history bin, or you can go back and delete it. Like I'm guilty of going back to Twitter and searching certain keywords. I'm like, what did I write about this ten years ago when I didn't know better? And just delete a bunch of things. I'm like, yeah, yeah that's but an we've old seen opinion. celebrities. Yeah, I mean, called I've out for things grace. that they said ten years, twenty years, yeah. and they apologize, but it's like, nope, not good enough. It and exists. I just think, ooh, our kids are going to be judged on a, an entirely different level than we ever have. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Speaking of parenting, that's what we talk to our kids about. Like, listen, online is no place for any of these jokes that live in the gray area that you think are funny right now. (laughs) That's such a good point. Nope. It's just not because it will follow you around. I'm going to pause right here for a second because you can't assemble the Council of Moms without talking about kids. And that's exactly where this conversation went as we thought about our own less than shining moments on social media. There's so much wisdom in what Amy said about teaching her kids that the internet isn't a good place to test out an edgy teenage sense of humor. We're going to explore that a little more. 
But as I've reflected on this conversation, I realized that this thing we instinctively know our kids need to learn is also a kind of social filtering. It's the same dance of trying to be yourself but knowing your audience and realizing that these different audiences online are nuanced and that there are consequences for how you present yourself in different situations. And when you apply that to teenagers, I mean, it doesn't even feel like there's a question as to whether this is a good or bad thing. You know, and of course, teenagers don't get that. And that's that for that, uh, that like chance yeah. to kind of work yeah. things out and figure out where boundaries are and what you really mm-hmm. believe. And kids do a yeah. lot of that with like humor and trying to find that balance 100%. and what they find funny yes. and what we find funny or other people may find funny, not funny with, you know, without that context. I think it's a really delicate parenting thing to, totally. to try and shepherd these kids into a world where what they say online may be forever. And, you know, really that is a challenge. And so I think it's really important for us to be the teachers and the guides and the models. And we have to know this stuff. We have to understand, you know, how Instagram works. We need to understand how Snapchat works. We have to understand all of that so we can, if not model the best behavior, at least know how to talk to our children and kind of help that those learnings take place in a way, hopefully, that isn't permanent, that doesn't, you know, hurt them in a way that is, like, leaves a lifelong scar. I mean, we all have those kinds of things, but it is more fraught these days and it is more permanent. But I also have a lot of hope there that when these kids grow up having had an, a real online presence in their own childhoods, that maybe they'll have more grace for each other yeah. when you encounter these sorts of things later. Mm. Oh, that would be That's so interesting helpful. to see if that emerges, that sort of compassion where they could say, hey, listen, I was a dumb kid on Snapchat. Too. Yeah, we all make mistakes. And it was probably a mistake, yeah. honestly, to have a place where adults and teenagers can also be in the same places. Yeah, you know, like old, adults, idea. we can hold each other to like different standards than teens who are really trying to work this stuff out and figure out where they stand. I really hope that, like Karina and Amy are saying, the world that my kids grow up into will have compassion for the mistakes they're bound to make as they navigate their social presence online. But it's not limited to online. I hope there's compassion for the stupid things they maybe wouldn't have said to their teacher if they had thought a moment longer before letting it out of their mouth, or the remark they might make to one of their grandparents at the holiday dinner table that definitely didn't land as it was intended. In the real world, I know my kids are going to build that wisdom the way all of us do by a lot of probably painful trial and error. And from that, they're going to learn to communicate in a way that deepens their connections and isn't accidentally offensive to people they love. Knowing how to tailor a message to your audience doesn't force you to be inauthentic. It gives you a choice. When we started exploring this topic of how different platforms affect our online identities and what it means when we inevitably show up differently in those places— It seemed like a negative dystopian thing, or at least that was contrary to being authentic. But I don't feel that way anymore. Karina pointed out that even when you're exactly the same on different platforms, people will interpret you differently. That's more about the space than it is about you. And you don't have to stick around in a space that feels uncomfortable. Amy came to that conclusion, too, and both of them found that they could connect with people better when they were intentional about the way they showed up in different places. It's not as much about whether you express yourself, but letting yourself choose your audience so that you're connecting with people who appreciate you for who you are. 
And if or when you catch yourself contorting yourself into something you're not or losing touch with your identity as a person because of the feedback you're getting online, that's a good time to stop. Take a break. And don't start again until you have a strategy for showing up as a whole person in however many or few platforms you choose. I want to end with something Amy Hopkins said. We were talking about dating apps, but it feels relevant to the rest of social media too, about building resilience when you face rejection in an online space. This reminds me so much of what we talked about in the last episode about how our online identity is giving a 2D representation of a 3D life. Not everyone's gonna love you, right? It's, yeah, you just have to learn to not really take it personally when someone rejects you. And they're not even rejecting you, they're rejecting a picture of you. It's a picture and a bio that they're rejecting. They don't know how funny and warm and caring and smart and whatever you are based on that. In the same way that few people will ever know you completely in real life, they can't know the whole you from just what you put online. You run deeper than your profile, and you wear a lot of different hats in your real life, so make those platforms work for you. If you're feeling adventurous like Karina, try the platforms your kids are using and look for new places where you feel free to share yourself and build connections with other people. Or stick with what you have and know that no one, not even the savviest social media users, are comfortable on every platform. If you feel like the odd one out at a playgroup in an English cemetery, you're not the only one. Talk about the latest Buffy episode. It gets better. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Michael Combs and post-production by Josh Fouts. You may notice that The Lisa Show does its own adapting on different social media platforms. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, where we post silly videos and behind the scenes. But if you check out our YouTube, you can also watch whole book club episodes from this series that we film live in the studio. We read every comment and answer every message. So thanks for connecting with us in so many different places. 